So that, that song, that God is for us, um, is probably an underlying theme for our message this morning. Um, we're actually going to take a look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, as David mentioned, Michael uh, began feeling a little under the weather. We talked late on Friday night, and we said, should we think about an alternative on Sunday morning? <laughs> we said, probably. So I've spent a little bit of time in chapter two myself, but not a ton. So I'm predominantly going to be working from Michael's notes. He sent them to me late Friday night. So I'll ask for just a little forgiveness. If something comes out a little awkward, that's me. If you hear anything profound, that's Michael. Right? I want to make sure we give credit where credit is due. Uh, this is predominantly his outline, so um, bear with us. So in, in light of the song we just sang, that God is for us, who can be against us, we're going to look at King David, who is going to pass away in our passage this morning. But before he does, he's going to give a charge to his son Solomon. He's going to have a couple of last final conversations with him about the future. And I was thinking about our current events today, and I was thinking about the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Do you think maybe she's had some legacy conversations with King Charles about what to expect, maybe how to behave, um, how to rule in a way that honors the kingdom? that maybe represents Queen Elizabeth herself? Probably. Probably. That's kind of like what we're going to see here this morning as King David is officially charging King Solomon with duties and responsibilities. So go ahead and open up to Second Kings, if you, or 1 Kings chapter 2, if you would. Our time this morning is really going to kind of break down into two major sections. Um, we're going to see King David instruct Solomon on how to first secure the kingdom. And then the second half of our time this morning, we're going to see uh, the efforts that Solomon takes to begin to secure the kingdom. Right? And when we look at David's instructions to Solomon on how to secure the kingdom, that itself is going to break down into two sections as well. There's going to be two parts. There's going to be basically a spiritual plea that David will give to Solomon, and there's going to be a more earthly plea. In other words, Solomon, here's who you should be as God's representative. Solomon, here's some tasks and things you need to do practically as a king ruling over an earthly people, right? So let's just take a look at verses 1 through 4 to begin with. It says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do 
and wherever you turn. So let the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you should not lack a man on the throne of Israel. All right. So what we see here in verse 2, I emphasize that for a moment. He says, I'm going the way of all the earth. And he says to his son, Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Well, this phrase appears to be a Hebrew idiom of sorts, calling for someone to be courageous. In fact, it was used by the Philistines in 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Paul himself uses a similar thought in 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, where he says, Be on the alert, stand firm. In the faith, act like men, be strong. And so this phrase is equivalent to be strong and courageous. When he says, be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man, it's equivalent to saying, be strong and be courageous. And it's used roughly over a dozen times in the Old Testament. So you get that reinforcement of that Hebrew idiom of being strong and being courageous. Turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 1. This might ring a bell for you guys as we navigate there. Joshua chapter 1. Some of you might remember that God had instructed Moses to send out spies into the promised land. And they were to go and and serve and operate as a reconnaissance mission. And so Moses selected a man from each tribe. There were 12 spies that went into the promised land to survey it and do a reconnaissance mission. And you might remember that those guys came back, and ten of them gave a really bad report. Ten of them said, man, the people in the land are really, really big. They're very, very powerful. But there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who said, no, we trust the Lord. If he says he's going to give it to us, we should be fine, right? And they gave a good report. Well, at the beginning of Joshua here, in verses uh, 1 through 9, we see God reminding Joshua that he's got his back. Just like the song we just sang, God reminds Joshua, and he uses the phrase that we just discussed. Look, verse 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the sons of Israel. So God has already said, I'm giving you the land. I'll do all the hard work. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and the Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you I will not fail you or forsake you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now watch in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Verse 9, we'll finish this up. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 2. What a great example and reminder that when God is for us, we are to be strong and courageous. Not in our own selves, in our own might, but in the might of the Lord. And so David says to his son Solomon, Be strong, be courageous, not in your own might, but in the might of the Lord. Verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord. He says, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. A charge is a responsibility one's been given. It's like an obligation or a duty, right? You you say, I'm charging you with this responsibility. I expect you to execute, uh, execute it with excellence, right? To its completion. We see how this is emphasized in some of the other English translations. The NET says, do the job the Lord your God has assigned to you. The Holman Christian Standard says, and keep your obligation to the Lord your God. The NIV, some of you might have that, and says, and observe what the Lord your God requires. So you get the idea that a charge from the Lord is, is a duty. It is something to be executed. It is something to be obeyed. And it's held in high esteem. Now, at a cursory glance, we might think that what David is referring to, and maybe what God is referring to, is Solomon's kingship, right? We might think, well, is David referring to the office of being a king when he's saying, I charge you? Not really. David doesn't really infer or mention that this is about being king. What David is concerned about is that his son Solomon would first and foremost be a man of God. That he would uphold his charge and his responsibility and his duty to be a man of God first. It was to be faithful to the Lord. That is the charge. Be faithful to the Lord. And what does that mean? Verse 3. To be faithful to God and to trust him is to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. That's what the charge is. That's what it means to be faithful to God. This is the same charge that the Lord gave to Israel after he gave them the law. Some of you might remember at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, right around verse 16, I think, somewhere in that range. Moses had given the law to the people. He was God's mouthpiece. And God, in the end, says, choose life or death. I'm giving you a choice. Remain faithful to me, prosper, live long in the land, or choose sin. That's it. Are we not responsible for the exact same choices in life? 
Choose Jesus, love the Lord, remain faithful, walk in his ways, or choose sin and death. Same expectation that God had given to his people, the Israelites. And do you think that when God is placing a king on the throne to lead his people, that that responsibility should be any different for the king? No. If God expects his people to be faithful, to walk in his commands and his ways and his ordinances, and to obey the law, well then certainly the king should as well. I mean, we see that in contemporary society, right? You know, we see news stories all the time on television about CEOs who are hypocritical, right? They operate completely differently than the way they're asking their people to operate. Or they have expectations of their board of trustees and stockholders that's different than what they feel they should be held to, right? And so God is charging Solomon to be faithful in the Lord first and foremost. David goes on. He goes on to remind Solomon that if you are faithful to the Lord, this is what he has promised to do for us. Look at uh, the end of verse 3 and beginning in verse 4. If you remain faithful, if you uphold this charge, this responsibility that you've been given, David reminds Solomon that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." So the first promise that David reminds his son Solomon is that when you are faithful to the Lord, you will succeed in everything you do. That seems like a pretty good motivator, doesn't it? Kind of reminds you of the garden a little bit, too. All you got to do is eat from all of this and don't eat from that one, and it's going to be a pretty good life. Think about how quickly we throw things away, even in our own lives. I'm not talking about materialism. I'm talking about principles. Think about how easily we can look at something in the flesh, in the material, that's right before our eyes, and forfeit some of the promises of God because that's what we're attracted to. He says, if you're faithful, steadfast, and continue to walk in the ways of the Lord, you'll prosper in all that you do. The second promise that David reminds Solomon is that he and his sons... Solomon and his sons would remain faithful, if they would remain faithful to the Lord, that the Lord would fulfill his promise to always have one of David's descendants on the throne. If you remain faithful to the Lord, Solomon, God has already said, your sons and your sons' sons and their sons' sons will remain on the throne. Our dynasty will last by the glory of God. And so the Lord repeated these promises to Solomon on two other occasions. In 1 Kings, we will see that coming up in chapter 3, verse 14, and in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, the second one, I believe, is a warning of what would happen if he didn't remain faithful to the Lord.
Susan and I support a missionary with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, which is crew now. Her name is Michelle Davis, and she's a local missionary. And she's plugged into a couple of the smaller campuses in, in the kind of larger central Ohio radius. And I was talking with her one time at the office uh, just about life and maybe even kind of how our office came to be and some of the ministries that we've had down there. And she was fascinated. And she said, would you be willing to come and talk to CCAD students? And I said, um, okay, sure. What do you want me to talk about? And she said, well, what I see from what you've shared is that you're in business and you're operating in business, but your faith is still first and foremost. That you have figured out ways to not hide your faith or not put it on the shelf for only Sundays, but that it still is a part of who you are even in business. And she said, I think that's important for Christian students in college to understand that they don't have to have a Christian hat that they put on on the weekends and the evenings, and then when they march off to work on Monday morning, take that Christian hat and put their work hat on and their professional hat, whatever that may be. I said, okay, so we, we had a discussion with these CCAD students along those lines. That's really what David is saying to Solomon. You are God's elect. You are called by God. You are God's man first. Before you ever occupy the office of king, you are called by God to behave, operate, and be loyal and faithful to him first and foremost. That is true of us. Whatever you have going on in life, whatever your activity, whatever application you happen to be walking out at any given moment in a worldly, natural sense, should not waive or exclude your obligation to be a representative for Jesus, first and foremost. I think about the Great Commission. We've talked about this many times here, where Jesus essentially is saying, as you go about your daily lives, you should be making disciples, baptizing and teaching. Not necessarily a dedicated missions trip that you jump on a plane and go overseas, but as you walk out your door, get in your car, turn the key, arrive at work and see people on the street and encounter people in your daily lives, you should be making disciples. You should be faithful to the Lord first as one who has been called by him. All right, so David is going to give a earthly and earthly plea as well. So that was sort of his spiritual plea to his son Solomon. His earthly plea is going to be verses 5 through 9. Let's take a look at this. Now... You also know that Joab, the son of Zariah, or Zer, yep, Zeruah, did to me what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war and peace. And he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Jera, the Benjamite, a Bahurim, now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Maniam. But 
when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. And so then David says to Solomon, now therefore, do not let him go unpunished. For you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. Whew! There's a lot there, isn't there? So something I want us to kind of be thinking about as we navigate through these individuals whom David has expressed concern and caution to his son Solomon. There is an underlying principle that David is expecting Solomon to recognize. And that is to act graciously to those who deserve grace, but to act justly with those who might deserve punishment for their actions. Okay? It's a difficult passage to digest because, you know, at face value, we might look at this and go, man, David's being really, really vengeful. That's what we might think. David's got a grudge. How many of you remember when we went over to Iran and Iraq and there were many accusations made of President George Bush Jr. that he was going over there to get even with Saddam Hussein for his father, George Bush Sr. There were many accusations, and I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what half of our country saw in our endeavors to go over there, that it was a vengeful type of act. So it's very easy for us to look at this and think, David's being really vengeful. He wants Solomon to go after these guys that were mean and, and harmed him and caused him problems. But the reality is that David is really giving Solomon advice so that the kingdom may be secure. And what we'll see as we progress through this chapter is that these guys were continuing to become a problem or would continue to become a problem for King Solomon in securing his earthly kingdom. The first was Joab. David mentions, mentions Joab first in verses 5 and 6. And we learned a lot about him in 2 Samuel. And when we saw the story of Joab in 2 Samuel, and we've seen Joab's name come up throughout our look at David's life, it was almost all bad, right? Every time we see Joab, he's acting in a rogue manner. He's always out to serve himself. He's oftentimes not obeying King David's orders. The guy's just selfish, and he's in it for his own interests, right? David describes him here in this passage as one who put the blood of war on his belt, around his waist, and on his sandals on his feet. That's how David describes this guy. I mean, that's like ruthless, right? He's a cold-blooded killer of even lives of innocent men, right? He was ruthless for David's enemies, but he was really even a killer of innocent men. And you might remember from our passage last week that Joab sided with David's son Adonijah when he was trying to steal the kingdom from Solomon. He was one of the ones who was there in support of Adonijah with the big celebration that you know, wasn't in Jerusalem there, that it was being done you know, away from David and David's court and all of David's supporters to try and install Adonijah as king instead of Solomon. 
So all of this that we just described about Joab, all of this made him a serious threat to Solomon and the kingdom going forward. So David says, deal with him the way he needs to be dealt with. The second person that David expresses concern about is Shimei. He was a supporter of King Saul. Uh, We see that in verses 8 and 9. We'll come back to verse 7 in a minute. And behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse. Turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 16. Second Samuel, chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 5. Verse 5 says, When King David came to Berhurim, um, or Berm, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jerah. He came out cursing continually as he came. Okay, He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. And thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. And the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. See, he thinks that David killed Saul. In whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, he was trying to give the kingdom to Absalom before he was trying to give the kingdom to Adonijah. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Look at David's grace. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of this cursing this day. His cursing this day. And then finally, so David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed, and he cast stones, and he threw dust at him. (laughs) And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. So let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 2. So what we see there is Shimei is, is another character who's got a rapport, a history, a rap sheet of opposing David. And what we saw there was David actually extended some grace to Shimei and said, you know what, I'm guilty of some bloodshed. It wasn't Saul, but maybe maybe he's an agent of the Lord. Maybe the Lord is working through him. I don't know. We shouldn't go kill him. Let him be. We'll endure his rock throwing. We'll endure his cursing. But he's on David's radar screen and he says, Solomon, you need to be mindful of this guy. 
He's likely going to usurp your authority over and over and over again. Deal with him wisely and accordingly. Now, in between David's instructions for um, Joab and in between his instructions for Shimei, we see in verse 7, Barzillai, the Gileadite, um, the sons. David says, these guys helped me when I was fleeing from Absalom. This was in 2 Samuel, I think, 17. Uh, David said, Solomon, I want you to show them favor. Those guys helped me. Not like Shimei, not like Joab, but they helped me when I was fleeing Absalom. Show them grace, and he says, invite them to your table. So what we'll say in conclusion here is that David's instructions to Solomon were not rooted in vengeance, but rather he was instructing Solomon, rule with wisdom and justice as necessary. When grace should be extended and mercy, extend grace and mercy. When justice needs to be exercised, do it accordingly in the wisdom of the Lord. It's not a vengeful. It's not David trying to get even. It's Solomon, act wisely, and of course remain faithful to the Lord. Now the second half we're going to see this morning, the second half will be Solomon's acts to secure the kingdom. This is what David had said here. Be mindful of this, and now we'll see how Solomon responds. The remaining uh, 36 verses in this chapter um, will be how David essentially carries out, or how Solomon carries out David's instructions. Um, Verses 10 through 25. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, And the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Uh, Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 30 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Yeah, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Speak. So he said, You know that the kingdom was mine. Is that true? No, not really. You know that the kingdom is mine and that all Israel expected me to be king. Eh, not really. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's for it was from the Lord. (laughs) Or his from the Lord. And now I am making one request of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, okay, speak. And then he said, please speak to Solomon the king for he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. And Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak to the king for you. And so Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king arose to meet her. He bowed before her and sat on his throne. And when he had a throne set for the king's mother, and uh, she sat at his right, then she said, I am making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. King Solomon answered and said to his mother, And why are you asking Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom, for he is my older brother, even for him, for Abiathar, the priest, and for Joab, the son of Zeruiah. 
I'm going to mess that up every time. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he has promised, surely Adonijah will be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him, Adonijah, so that he died. So what we saw there was obviously David passes away, but Solomon has to deal with Adonijah. He's still trying to usurp Solomon's authority, and he's still trying to steal the throne. And it's a little bit subtle, but Adonijah knows that if he can marry Abishag, David's nurse, who is now considered part of David's court, that he's got access to the throne. He's either close to the throne or he's able to rightfully sit as heir of the throne. Even though there wasn't anything fishy, even though there wasn't anything romantic necessarily or sexual with Abishag and David, Solomon recognizes that Adonijah is trying to weasel his way back into the court so that he can have access to the throne. And this is a, this is a problem. So he says, I'm going to deal with this immediately. I'm just going to nip this in the bud and just take care of it right now. Next, Solomon has to deal with Abiathar, the priest. He's going to basically fire him as priest. Look at verses 26 and 27. Then to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, Go to Anath, Anathoth, to your own field. For you deserve to die, because, remember, he was a part of Adonijah's campaign as well. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord, God, before my father, David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now, this is a reference to um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, where God had already pronounced that he would cut off the descendants of Eli from being priests. So God had already prophesied, had already foretold, had already promised that this would happen to the descendants of Eli, Solomon is aware of that, and he realizes this is the instrument, the event, the catalyst that God will use to do that. So he doesn't kill Abiathar the priest, but he does dismiss him, says, go away, you are no longer to sit as a priest, and therefore your descendants have not been cut off as priests as well. All right, the next person we see Solomon having to deal with is Joab. And this is kind of an interesting story. I kind of chuckled when I saw this because I felt that this looked a lot like modern-day behavior in a way. He basically tries to hide in the tent of meeting. Okay, Joab tries to hide in the tabernacle. Look at verses 28 through 35. Just, just think about this maybe as you were a kid, right? You haven't read it yet, but like, like home base, you know, safe, right? Now the news came to Joab, for Joab had 
followed um, Adonijah, although he had not followed Absalom. And Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. (laughs) And it was told King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord. And behold, he is inside the altar, beside the altar. And then Solomon said to Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, Thus the king has said, Come out. But he said, No, because I'm going to die here. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Here's what Joab said. <laughs> and thus he answered me. You're not coming out. He says he's going to die here. And the king said to him, Do as he has spoken and fall upon him and bury him, that you may remove from me and from my father's house the blood which Joab shed without cause. Remember we talked about Joab shedding innocent blood of innocent men. And the Lord will return his blood on his own head because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword while my father David did not know it. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and his descendants and his house and his throne, may there be peace from the Lord forever. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up, fell upon him, and put him to death. And he was buried at his own house in the wilderness. And the king appointed Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in his place. And the king appointed Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So, look at this. Joab recognizes what happens to Abiathar and Adonijah and realizes, okay, Adonijah just got killed and slain for his actions. I know I'm next. Right? He sees the writing on the wall. He's like, man, I'm going to get it. And I probably deserve it. And yet, he was arrogant enough to believe that he would be able to be protected by seeking refuge in the tabernacle and grabbing the horns of the altar. You know, like when you're on the playground, you're playing tag or something else, you know, and you run over and it's like, base, safe, you know, and you're just you're grabbing that pole or that jungle gym equipment or whatever it is, safe, base. You just Can't you just imagine Joab running into the tabernacle? I mean, completely disrespectful, right? completely out of order, out of protocol, running in there, grabbing the horns of the altar, safe, safe, you wouldn't dare come in here and kill me, would you? Right? You wouldn't dare come into the altar of the Lord while I'm holding on. Tear me away and kill me. Well, sorry, pal. You're right. You are dying in there. So we see that Joab's death, even there, or wherever it took place near inside the tabernacle, became a judgment upon him for his actions previously. It became a judgment for him shedding the innocent blood, in addition to all the other rogue behavior he exhibited under David's leadership. Now lastly, Solomon deals with Shimei. Verses 36 to 46. Now the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there and do not go out from there to any place. Okay. So, a little bit of grace, right? I'll make you a deal. 
You stay in Jerusalem where I can keep an eye on you. I'll let you live. For it will happen on the day that you go out and cross over the brook of Kidron, you will know for certain that you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. It will be your fault, your responsibility if you leave the city, is what Solomon's saying. Shimei then said to the king, the word is good. Yep, I'll take that deal. As my lord the king has said, your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. All right, good deal for a while. But it came about at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, uh, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Then Shimei rose and saddled his donkey and went to Gath to Achish to look for his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. So he goes and he gets them. He brings them back. And it was told of Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and that he had returned. So the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, You will know for certain that on the day you, you depart and go anywhere, you will surely die. And you said to me, The word which I have heard is good. We had a deal, Shimei. You and I both agreed. I told you the terms. You said, Yup, I agree to those terms. And Solomon says, why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I have laid on you? The king also said to Shimei, you know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord shall return your evil on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, And he went out and fell upon him also that day, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. So did you see a little bit of grace there? You know, Shimei had two opportunities. Not only had he cursed and cast the stones and berated David and his servants previously, And David said, no, the Lord may be using his as an instrument of chastisement for me. Let him be. We'll endure the harsh words and the cursing. We'll endure the stones. He's still a wicked guy. He's still evil. Solomon says, you're probably worthy of death because of your behavior, but I'll make you a deal. You stay here in Jerusalem. And we might assume that that way Solomon could kind of keep his eye on him. Stay here, I'll let you live. That's all. That's it. Let's make an oath before the Lord. You and I, we both agree before the Lord. We stand here. And it was good for a little bit. And then Shimei goes, no, I'm going to leave for a little while and come back. Some may say, man, that was pretty harsh. Some may look at this and go, man, Solomon, was it really that offensive? Was it an oath made to each other and before the Lord? Was it already a second and third chance of grace and mercy? Was he already exhibiting similar traits that he had been in rejecting authority? Yeah. And so what we see here is that many scholars will treat David and Solomon's actions here 
as anything but righteous. You know, they'll kind of look at David and Solomon's actions with these men and go, I don't know. They claim that David and Solomon have acted purely on vengeance. Um, Michael's note here says that, you know, one even referred to um, Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, Solomon's top military men, uh, Benaiah, as shrewd and ruthless advisors. That's what some of these scholars are saying about these guys. Uh, referring to Benaiah as bloodthirsty. Um, another refers to Adonijah as poor and vulnerable, as though he was a victim. And these viewpoints probably fail to take into account a couple of things. The first is that each of these men were clearly a threat to God's plan for both David and to Solomon serving as king. And, and their punishments were their own judgment. Their, their death became a punishment and a judgment for their actions. The second viewpoint that's probably being failed to be taken into consideration, even by these great scholars who think that this was vengeful on David and Solomon's part, um, is that Solomon's actions are actually presented as a positive thing in the text, which ultimately establishes the kingdom in Solomon's hands. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Verse 12 says that, And Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So God approves God is endorsing, God is willing that that Solomon be establishing his kingdom. Look at verse 46. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. And so we see that these actions are not vengeful, they're not rogue. This is part of God's plan. These deaths serve as judgment for behavior. And the result is that Solomon is in the process of securing the kingdom, which is God's will. Do you notice that David's instructions to Solomon first began with a call to be faithful to the Lord? His instructions... Prior to passing away, on his deathbed, he's saying to his son, first and foremost, be faithful to the Lord. That was the number one charge. If you want to succeed as king, remain faithful to the Lord, first and foremost. Isn't it the same for us? Isn't our number one call in life to be faithful to the Lord, first And foremost, Jesus said that the number one command was to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's it. Which command is the most important one? Tell you what, they're all summed up in one. Just love the Lord your God with every part of your being. That's it. You do that, the other commands take care of themselves. If we're not faithful to Jesus, nothing else matters. 
Think about that. Nothing else really matters if we fail to be faithful to Jesus. Did you notice that David called on King Solomon to be courageous and faithful to the Lord? Be courageous. Israel was surrounded by pagans inside and outside their borders. And they were constantly influencing God's people. They were temptations to adopt the pagan practices that they saw around them. We saw over and over and over again in Joshua and in Judges when God instructed his people, when you go into the land that I'm going to give you, tear down the high places. Tear down those places of worship that are, have been erected to Baal and Asherah and everybody else, these false gods and idols. Tear those things down. Occasionally they did and occasionally they didn't. Sometimes Israel went in and they said, well, you know, it's a perfectly good building and why can't we go and worship Yahweh in there? Seems logical. But over time, they would become infected and they would adopt those unfortunate practices of those pagan cultures. They would intermarry with those other cultures. And God said, no, don't do that. So the same is true of us today, right? I mean, look at our lives and look at what we're surrounded with. Look at the pressures that we have from the world to adopt their cultures and their practices and their ways of thought. Their principles. It's so easy. It's so easy to go, well, I mean, yeah, it's kind of okay. I mean, I can, I can slap my Jesus bumper sticker on that and, and, and justify it. God says no. Michael's got a note that says there are at least 12 references in the New Testament to standing firm. And he says that six were used in a command form. Let me read these to you. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We did that one earlier. Galatians 5, 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Ephesians six fourteen. Stand firm, therefore. Philippians 4, 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And then lastly, 1 Peter 5, 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, Peter says. And so, lastly, we'll just kind of note. Are we not also, as believers in Christ Jesus today, called to act justly and mercifully and gracefully? That we are to be just and righteous in our views of sin. We are to not condone sin. We are not to become parties to sin. Right? We've not been given a command to go kill as punishment for sin. God will take care of that. God will judge in the last days. We spent four or five weeks talking about that. But we're not to love it, partake of it, condone it, and act as though it's okay. So we are to act justly and rightly in our response to sin, just 
in a similar way that Solomon was to deal wisely with sin. We are to act gracefully and mercifully as well. David said, hey, those sons, hey, help me. Be good to them. Invite them to your table. Act graciously. When others who I'm instructing you about and cautioning you about deserve death, these guys, welcome them into your household. We should do the same. We should operate with grace and mercy. I think about the parable that Jesus gave about the wicked servant who had been forgiven his financial debt, then goes in, comes out of the house just berating another servant for the debt that he was owed, completely forgetting about his own debt had just been wiped off and had been forgiven. How quickly do we behave like that? How quickly do we get offended by the sin that others commit towards us? And they're legit. We get it. You know, it's, it feels awful. It hurts. It doesn't mean that it's right. But how quickly do we start berating that person who sinned against us, forgetting that our sin against the Lord Almighty has been forgiven and wiped clean in full and in perpetuity? Maybe that's a heart check and a gut check for us sometimes. Not that their sin was okay to us. I forgive you. Seventy times seven. So we see here this great legacy being passed on from King David to King Solomon with instructions that are all predicated upon remaining faithful to the Lord and walking in his ways and his commands first. And if you do so, you will be successful in whatever you do, and you'll have the wisdom to manage an earthly kingdom, King Solomon. Amen.